This is Jim Everhart, author of Brand Vision, The Clear Line of Sight, Aligning Business Strategy and Marketing Tactics. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Jim Everhart to talk about his book, Brand Vision, The Clear Line of Sight, Aligning Business Strategy and Marketing Tactics, published by Business Expert Press. Jim Everhart is a strategist and writer who works with corporations and agencies to develop marketing communications tactics and campaigns. He spent more than four decades in the marketing industry, most of it at Godfrey Advertising, one of the largest business-to-business marketing agencies in the United States. He played a leadership role at Godfrey in marketing strategy, technology development, and creative implementation, rising to the position of vice president and creative director. And interesting fact... He was once a reporter with the Associated Press, ran track in college, and to this day remains a distance runner. Jim, congratulations on Brand Vision, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Douglas. This is, it's a great opportunity to talk to you and to marketers around the world. I'm excited about it. Well, I enjoyed your book. It's a short book. But there's a lot to talk about. So <laughs> now, before we get going, though, there's some, as, as you can imagine, I do a lot of research for these interviews. And it's not just reading the author's book. No, 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 no. There's deep, there's deep research. And I've got to ask you a couple of questions. Are you affiliated with the Everhart Museum of Natural History, Science, and Art in Scranton, Pennsylvania? I am not, but I'm familiar with it. I I I only started found out about it a couple of years ago. I am, but I am not affiliated with it. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Founded by in 1908 by Dr. Isaiah F. Everhart, a Civil War medic, Scranton physician, and amateur ornithologist. Jim Everhart, you have no idea how much useless trivia is clogging up my mental hard drive. But I was just curious about that, because if you did, you'd have serious street cred with people who are fans of the TV show The Office, because uh, that was based in Scranton. Now, one other question, though, uh, because this is, just, this is just the tip of the spear of the research I do. Are you at all related to Angie Everhart, the American actress and former model who appeared in several Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues in the 1990s and posed nude for Playboy in 2000? No. Okay, because I was going to say answer very carefully on that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're not related to her. Okay. Well, no. I think uh, now that we've established uh, your last name, everyone's going to remember Brand Vision and <laughs> Jim Everhart. I do appreciate that. I do appreciate <laughs> yes. that. Yes. Well, you know, it's uh, I suffer from my art, Jim. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> 
it's 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 all about uh, not only that. I know you went to Franklin and Marshall. I think you're the first graduate of that school. So that, of course I had to go down that whole rabbit hole and read about the history of that uh, that school. So very interesting. And that's where you ran track, right? Yes. Okay. Well, I want to read an excerpt from page XV in the uh, intro and then another section, and then we'll get into it. Okay. So, the part from the introduction, it was late in the day when I received a frantic call from an account manager at the business-to-business agency where I worked. The client's president and CEO was demanding a clear line of sight between business strategies and marketing tactics. How, they wanted to know, would a specific tactic like a trade show, brochure, or video, help the company achieve its strategic goals, things like value innovation or global reach. The request was not that unusual. American companies each year spend billions of dollars in business planning and strategy, yet in a global survey of 4,400 senior executives, consulting firm PwC found that about 80% of the respondents admitted that their overall corporate strategy was not well understood even within their own companies. And that means they're not implemented, especially in marketing, where strategy needs to come to life if it's going to be effective. It's a sad truth that business strategy often gets lost in the fog of marketing warfare as the abundance of new choices inundates marketers. Things such as websites, public relations releases, ads, emails, paid search, or Facebook posts take on a life of their own, demanding immediate action and paying little need to the grand strategy. And they all claim to be silver bullets. Every year, there are thousands of articles and millions of words written about creating business strategies. Plus, there are hundreds of books published. Brand Vision is not one of them. (laughs) It is not a blueprint for creating a strategy. Rather, it is a clarion call to implement the strategy you already have. And then on the next page, you write, Brand Vision is designed to be a practical step-by-step program that provides a solid framework for implementing business strategies through the marketing process. It uses strategic messaging to connect business strategy and marketing tactics, giving corporate executives and marketers the lens they need to sharpen their focus, clarify their objectives, and bring their goals in sight. It is about making those vital connections between business strategy and marketing tactics, bridging those divides. In other words, it's designed to give our client's CEO the clear line of sight that exec was looking for. So like I said, this is a short book, and I, I appreciate that. I think short books are much hard, more difficult to write, <laughs> but well, we can't cover everything. Let me mention the cover of the book, which I don't often do, but it's got a series of sort of luminescent pyramids on it. And in your book, a lot of the processes that you describe involve pyramids, and you've honed that over over many years. But also, when I posted a picture of this book on LinkedIn, you know, as I always do, like what, what books are coming up, there were a number of comments about the cover. I don't think I've had so many comments about the cover. So for those of you that haven't seen the cover, go to this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, and you'll, you'll see that. And like I said, there's a lot of granular information about exactly how to do the things you're talking about. But I'm going to focus mainly just on some of the bigger concepts to get folks whipped into a frenzy to want to read this. And we'll, ha- we'll follow sort of an inverted pyramid, it- picking up on the pyramid theme, in that probably the most questions are from chapter one. <laughs> the second most are from chapter, kind of work our, work our way down. There's some concepts I want to pull out from the, uh, throughout the book. L- let's get into 
strategy, because the subtitle of the book, The Clear Line of Sight, Aligning Business Strategy and Marketing Tactics. And here I want to quote from page two, where you write, some of the problem with strategy starts with the word itself and its current cachet. I've been in meetings where people throw the term around to describe their plans for everything from PR and search to Instagram and email. Let's agree from the outset that those things can and should be strategic, but they are not strategies themselves. Strategy is a notoriously binary choice. Either you have one or you don't. And having five is the same as not having one at all. Jim, please explain. Okay, sure. I think what what concerns me most of all is that, you know, when I'm in a meeting and somebody's saying, well, we have a Facebook strategy or we have an Instagram strategy or something like that, I get it that they're trying to say that they're trying to be strategic, if you will. They're trying to say that what they have is important and has been thought out. But what I really worry that they're trying to say is, and this is a theme that's constant, is that, oh, this changes everything. Oh. And so, yeah, and you've heard that before. Oh, oh this changes You know, everything. reading your book, it, it, for, for years, I felt like I've been taking crazy pills. And so <laughs> I, I read through some of this, and there were a few rants in here I'm going to quote from, just because they made me feel better. So that, Jim, the healing has already begun. This is turning into a, a support group for two old ad guys. That's great. That's great. Well, that's that's what I'm I'm trying to accomplish here, which is, Getting people to understand that, hey, Facebook is great. Don't get me wrong. It's great. But it's a tool and it's only a tool. It's, it's, and the, the fact that people say that, that they have something and it changes everything means that I think they're saying, we don't have to pay attention to what you're doing in any other area. We're doing Facebook and we're being super cool. And that's all you need to care about. And, and I'm saying, hold on, no way. I'm not buying that at all. Facebook is a great tool. You know, Twitter is a great tool. Instagram's a great tool, all great tools. But you got to understand how to use them and make sure you're harnessing that great potential in service of your entire business strategy. Yes. And there's all kinds of benefits to marketers who are able to do what you have in the book, even if their management doesn't quite understand it in the beginning. But it's as if people are thinking, you know, um, the laws of gravity no longer apply. And I can say this, and I know you understand it, because we both lived and worked through the dot-bomb era. And there were probably a number of startups that you dealt with, and they were just coming in saying, no, no, the rules of marketing no longer apply. There will be no more retail uh, shops or whatever, whatever, and they were rather full of themselves. Sure. Uh, which you know, working in the agency world for so many years, I'm used to people like that. But still, <laughs> they all kind of flamed out, and some survived. But anyway, en- enough about my issues. Let me ask you something else from from page two, and ask you to explain. You write, despite all the confusion and hand wringing, a good strategy is not really that hard to figure out. But it is, almost by definition, notoriously hard to implement. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, once again, when you look at – I mean, I use the um, uh, the book, The Disciplines of uh, Market Leaders, as, a, as kind of an inspiration. 
um, to help to talk about, oh, there's really three basic kinds of approaches, high-level approaches a company can take. And, um, you know, so it's not like rocket science to figure out which category you fit into and to follow the uh, you know, follow what what's appropriate for that uh, that value discipline, but the, the and you know you can take lots of other you know uh, strategic approaches, but they all do come down to stating the strategy fairly simply. And if a strategy can't be almost put on a bumper sticker. You're you're in trouble. <laughs> yes, and- yes, it can't be implemented. The people outside, inside the company, can't understand it. Right. Yeah, you know the other thing that one of many that you address, uh, which is actually on the next page. Remember, I said most of the questions are going to come from chapter one. <laughs> I did read the whole book though. Just okay. I want I want full credit from whatever that issue oh, is. I have with, uh, with a teacher that thinks I didn't do the homework. You talk about strategy should not be esoteric, abstract, or confusing. Rather, it needs to be crystal clear, even intuitive. And I may be butchering their names. Orit Gadish and James Gilbert yes. note in their 8100 rule, a strategy that is 80% right and 100% implemented <laughs> is better than a strategy that is 100% right and not understood or implemented. I think there's a lot of fear thinking, oh, no, we got to get that right. It's got to sound good. Then we're going to put it on a binder and it's going to collect dust. But it, of course, I'm a fan of military history. It reminded me of a quote from General Patton, World War II general, who said, a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That is kind of like back to the marketing warfare kind of. Yes, exactly. Exactly. A blast from the past, a Trout and Rees book. Yeah. So I want to go to uh, the next section, which And I want to quote from page five. You write, business strategy answers a fundamental question. Who are you? (laughs) It identifies your core purpose and it establishes your positioning, the central dynamic for marketing. Unfortunately, positioning sometimes gets lost in the shuffle as the pressure of everyday life causes us to sometimes lose sight of what is important. Now, you talk about the good news and the bad news of positioning. And I want to ask you to explain both. The good news, you probably already have one. Explain. Well, what's funny is um, I have I have had the opportunity to work with lots of companies, especially when they do a, a leadership transition, especially when you're transitioning away from the founder. And the founder uh, of a company probably has the the strategy built into their DNA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether you like it or not, they're, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's there, but it, but it may not be stated explicitly, may not be stated at all, in fact. And, but everybody, you know, the founder just assumes everybody knows it. Uh, well, as soon as the, the the founder walks out the door, retires or whatever, moves on to the uh, to their reward in the great beyond, um, the, you know, it's no longer understood, explicit, um, or part of the DNA anymore, and that's that's the problem. So the, they may have one, and if you you might not be able to ask anybody inside the company they might not be able to tell you what their strategy is but boy you go outside and 
um, competitors can tell you what your what your strategy is, and customers can too. Yeah, so that's actually a. The good news and the bad news. The good yeah. news is that there there is one. <laughs> There's one there, but it, it may not be spelled out. And I would add that it's not spelled out as even the current management thinks it is. Yeah. Um, but I want there's there's some some danger here by not doing this. You write failing to clearly articulate and promote your positioning can set in motion a dangerous chain of events. What what sort of things happen? Which wheels fall off? Well, that it's it's very easy to, especially when the founder's no longer there, it's very easy to stray. It's very easy to, you know, let uh, salesmen uh, can very easily start to sell on price. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, people can start to offer, you know, oh, well, we've got to, you know, if, if you're not articulating it, you know, what do they say? It's, it's sometimes the, the things you say no to are more important than the things you agree to. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, that is very easy to, or it's very hard to pass up revenue sometimes, uh, when, even though it's not, um, not your core business and not your core, you know, doesn't fit your core strengths. And so, you know, that, that, that differentiation and that um, positioning can get lost in a hurry. Yeah. It seems like it can really screw up your operations. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) We're not even talking about the marketing here, but just the operations, how people know to make decisions. Yeah. So and see that's that I mean to me that's the important part of branding you know in some ways the the, the most important part of branding uh, you know hey you and I we grew up in the advertising business Douglas and we we talked about the fact that you know we promoted to the outside but one of the most important parts of branding is 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 how how easy it is for the internal audience to know and understand and execute on the positioning. Yes, and nature abhors a vacuum. And I've seen it many, many times where people don't really know what they stand for. It's the same kind of company where you talk to them, and they'll say, well, talk to me about your ideal customer profile. Who, who are you going after? And they'll basically say, anyone that can fog a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> or anybody who check will, uh, you know, who they can cash. Yes, exactly, know? exactly. So it's really a, a race to the bottom. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flipped the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. One of the central points of the book you introduce early on, and that is from Michael Tracy yes. and Fred Wiersma. Yes. And I wanted to ask you to explain these three things, what they call value disciplines. So you, yes. 
I loved it because it was only three things. I think even Michael Porter has five. And you talk about Michael Porter quite a bit, a lot of great quotes from him. But if you could talk about these three things, uh, that would really be helpful because the listener is going to hear this and start to see where they might be on this triangle or pyramid. And that is the three parts are product leadership, operational excellence, and customer affinity. So you probably yes. need to define those and explain w- what that means and, and what it doesn't, because <laughs> you're okay. very good at talking about the things that don't really work for strategy, uh, but people often try to sneak in. And it reminds me of another fantastic book I had on the show a year or two ago by Chuck Bamford called The Strategy Mindset 2.0. Yet another very short book. He's a PhD in marketing, and he talked about where a lot of this doesn't really work well, just like you do, <laughs> like talking about <laughs> you know, growth or something like that. But, but please, yeah. walk us through those three. Sure. Uh, I'll try, and I'll try and make it sh- um, uh, do a quick summary, and then we can follow up with any questions you have, if, if that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so uh, operational excellence, that's, uh, that's about really making sure all your processes and procedures are really buttoned up and really, really executing um, efficiently and effectively. Now, Tracy and Weersma talk about the fact that that can have two parts to it. It can be like a chemical company that is making a chemical as, you know, perfectly pure, you know, kind of, um, you know, absolutely, you know, flawless from, you know, and if you're making medicines or you're making explosives or anything else with these chemicals, that's really important. Mm -hmm. I Um, guess safety would be part of that. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and, but the flip side of that, you can also take that operational excellence to, drive down cost. So think Walmart, think somebody who is just absolutely ruthless in cutting costs and finding ways to, um, uh, you know, to improve the operation, and make it very, very tight and, uh, you know, a- and execute very, very well. Right. And there are a number of things Walmart doesn't even bother with. No. Uh, well, would FedEx be another example of that uh, operational... I- I, I think so. You know, what's funny is I've had debates about FedEx over the years. Yes, I, I think the answer is yes, as far as, but they also play a role in logistics too. And we'll talk about that oh, when okay. we get to customer affinity. Okay. Um, so Walmart would be an example of operational excellence. Yes. All right. I guess, would Amazon be one? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. That's another good example. Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, and and since Amazon wasn't uh, hadn't earned their spurs yet when um, uh, Tracy and Weersma wrote the book, it, it they probably would have included it if they had, mm. you know. But uh, you know, if, if it had been, but so uh, it's probably just uh, you know just getting started at that point. Then, as far as product and technology excellence, uh, you know, leadership—that's where you're all about making great products, um, you know. And almost uh, they use the example back from from their time of Sony. But I think Apple is one that we would instantly think of today, where they're constantly reinventing, pushing the envelope, 
you know, out there with R and D, out there with you know the next new technology, the next new thing. How do I make this better? How do I make this run better? How do I make it, um, you know, and and defining uh, you know whatever the cutting edge is in their particular industry. Once again, as I said, uh, Apple's a great example now. Um, and there, you know, Sony would be a, was at the time, you know, and they talked about, and there were lots of people that talked about the fact that these companies, uh, product and technology excellence companies don't worry about making their own products obsolete. That's, that's what they do. That's their job. That's how they think. Um, and that's what they do. Okay, yeah. And so their book was written in 94, The Discipline yeah. of Market Leaders, Choose Your Customers, Narrow Your Focus, Dominate Your Market. I'll include a link to that uh, book. Now, you talk in the book, just to step uh, for a second on product technology leadership, I think uh, in the book you gave an example of you know, my experience with manufacturers is that every one of them thinks they're innovative. And that's all, yeah. they, <laughs> that's all the engineers want to talk about. As they say in the South, bless their hearts. Yeah. <laughs> but you did a project and you showed how like most of their, this one particular manufacturer, or maybe it was a fictional example in the book, where you showed that all of them were grouped up at that particular corner of the of the of the triangle. Yeah, and, but they didn't realize that at first. No, no, they were debate. We we had. To, I mean, this was an actual. Uh, this, I mean, can't you tell, uh, Douglas? This is painfully obvious. Painfully, um, uh, I'm. I, I'm, the pain is is evident here. Put it that way, you know. <laughs> sitting through a, a, a half a day session with people debating about, you know, which of these categories they are, and and uh, you know, it's like when I came back and wrote them down and said, "Holy matter!" I mean, we had twelve people, and they had um, they had twelve different. Uh, positioning they, they were all doing it. So, like, how can that be? How can we have gone through a half an hour and we, have, we haven't had anybody agree with anybody else? Um, but when you, you thought about it, those were all product leadership. Yes. Here, let me, let me add to it. You, you, you've got several of them here. It's, uh, they came up with innovation, quality, accurate, performance, expertise, reliability, experience, applications engineering, uh, precise, latest technology. Well, <laughs> Yeah, and it's like I'm not making that up. That that really happened, <laughs> right? Oh, I feel like I've been in these uh, in these sort of meetings before, and I can remember a quick anecdote. Uh, years ago, working in an agency, and they had a, a series of healthcare accounts, and the owner of the agency, you know, when it came for the big pitch to the pres- presentation to the healthcare system and the board, and you know, the doctors and the people running the hospital, they come in for the for the big pitch, and. Every single time he would do the big wind up and he'd say, and with you, we're going to focus on two things. And he would pull up one finger and he'd say quality. And then he would bring up his second finger and say innovation, (laughs) quality and innovation. And they ate it up. I mean, he only did that because they ate it up. There were a bunch of, there was a room full of clapping seals. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it really wasn't. That's us. Yeah. Yeah. So I can, my point of telling the story about the clapping seals is that you probably got these folks pretty excited and they they felt good about it, but you still had to guide them to what was uh, a right. more realistic uh, strategy. So that's an example of the product technology third, you know, we're talking about a triangle here. Mm-hmm. That's the product technology leadership. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the last one is customer affinity. Yes. And 
going on that, and you mentioned FedEx, the, the example that they cite, uh, that Tracy and Wiersma cite, was UPS. And, and for a while, they were uh, – um, UPS was even having a logistics campaign where they were pushing the whole idea of logistics, which was basically, you tell me what you want and what you need to move and where you need to move it and all that kind of stuff, and we'll help you do that. And so that's really structuring our service offering or product or service offering around what it is that you uh, that you do and that um, and, and you know and that's so it's it doesn't matter what the product category is it is more of a it ends up being more of a service because you're going to give them exactly what they need Mm-hmm. And you're going to you're going to charge more for it, but but you're going to save them a ton of time and money because you're tailoring what you're doing to what they need. Right, and it becomes the the more they learn about that and provide that service, it becomes that much more of a a distinguishing or differentiating yes aspect of their company. It's kind of like when I think it was Borders turned over their online activity to the nascent Amazon folks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were basically paying Amazon to figure out how to put them out of business. Yeah. They were they yeah. were giving that over and Amazon just got better and better and better. And you talk about uh, again back to Michael Porter, the essence of strategic positioning is choosing a tailored set of activities that make it extremely difficult for competitors to emulate. And one of the interesting things to help you get closer to the which which area of the triangle you should focus on is if you suddenly had a million dollars in investment capital, what would you do with it? And that helps to point you in the direction of which of those three areas could you invest in to make it even harder for your competition right. to catch up? What uh, Building a moat, basically. Yeah. And you know what's funny about that is that I've been in situations, uh, discussions like that, and a lot of people say, well, if I had a million dollars and those are the three areas – I'd spend a third of it in each area. And it's like, no, you're not getting it. That's the wrong answer. (laughs) You're missing the point. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's about, it's really about making that choice. And that comes back to that original question you said, um, making the choice is easy. Sticking to it, implementing it is what's hard. Yeah. Michael Porter wrote, the essence of strategy is choosing what not to do. I've heard of it, uh, said uh, Rebecca Geyer in her book, uh, Smart Marketing for Engineers. She's, you know, says, you have to say no to grow. Yes. Well, let me ask you something else here, because um, I'm sure there's some people listening in who've got their arms crossed and uh, are thinking, I don't know, what do these two ad guys know? So those folks may be saying, "Eh, I don't know. And you write, some critics, and when I say critics... I'm referring to those people with their arms crossed thinking, oh, what are these guys? Some critics have argued that Porter's insistence on sustainable competitive advantage is too limiting, that there are a number of new factors such as social media or the ongoing digital revolution, which change the rules of the game. They have advocated for greater agility and flexibility, arguing that competitive advantage is transient at best and advancing ideas like lean startups and the idea that especially new companies are essentially searching for a business model. How does Jim Everhart react to that? 
it's it's like you know it goes back to what we had talked about before the the dot bomb yeah the the laws of gravity didn't change because we went to the moon you know right. <laughs> yes. the laws of gravity are still there and gravity's going to pull you down if you don't um if you don't pick a value discipline and stick with it um it's it's you know it it's going to be a problem and uh you know trying to be all things to all people i'm convinced never works and mm-hmm. you know once again you know come back to you talk about social media or anything like anything like that those are those are great tools uh, but they don't they don't change the laws of nature the yes. laws of physics <laughs> right yeah just a Quote, you say, in my view, that's not how things work. When mankind first landed on the moon in 1969, a lot of things changed. Computers took a huge step forward, for instance, but some things didn't change. We still need to obey the laws of gravity, even though we changed our understanding of the subject, to say the least. The same is true of marketing. Yes, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and especially the internet and email have changed the ways we go to market, but the rules are still the same. We simply have different tools. So anyway, well, there were just certain rants in the book, and I was like, yes, yes, I thank you. Thank you so much. I thought I was taking uh, crazy pills. Well, let's, go, let's go a little further into the marketing, though. You've got a section here that says, what do marketers need from strategy? This is on page 12. Okay. And I want you to explain, you talk again about Michael Porter. He says, marketers need a clear understanding of how the company creates competitive advantage. So it's almost like you're telling the marketers, this is what you, you need to be looking for. This is sort of a North Star for you to help guide your company. Would, would that be accurate? Yes. Yes, very true. And because it's, it's like, you know, you have to understand that sometimes people aren't buying what you're selling. And <laughs> those are, that, that's okay. That's okay. They're not your customer then. And if you, if as soon as you know who isn't your customer, then you're, I mean, that's, you know, that's one step, uh, you know, one step forward, really. And what you have to do is, you. Ha- it's very, very important, you know, to make these choices and make them and stick to them. That's uh, I, th- I think that's the and and th- that marketers don't get to break the rules. You know, sometimes I I think people people act like marketing should get a free pass because because we do cool fun stuff. Oh. But, but but I'm sorry, there's no free passes. Yes, fact, it, it, no free pass. Number one and number two, if if marketing is gonna survive if you will in 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 the coming years it it's because marketing becomes the ceo's best friend in explaining the strategy internally at, as well as externally yes yes and again i i can't resist i mean i may be the only uh, old ad guy you're going to be interviewed by but there's just certain uh, sections of your book about this very topic you know shouldn't shouldn't marketing get a free pass this guy named everhart says, the answer is not just no, it is emphatically no. Marketers need to understand that strategy is more important than design and aesthetics, more important than Instagram or Facebook. From a marketing perspective, those tools exist to support strategy, period. 
and the role of creative efforts is to articulate and implement the strategy in communications at all levels. So when a marketer's there, and I'm just thinking, Jim, and I don't know if you've seen this, but you know, the, the marketers aren't necessarily being told what the strategy is or what the business objectives are, and they need to go either find them or help the company, uh, you know, discern what they are. It, am I, uh, did you encounter that or is that just a... Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, on about three levels. For one thing, I think I said I could probably count on one hand the number of times in 40 years that I walked into a meeting with a new client and somebody says, okay, so here's our business strategy. Um, the number of times that happened, I'm not even sure it happened. You know, let's put it this way. I didn't have to take off my shoes to count the number of times it happened. <laughs> but it wasn't a strategy. They would be like, oh, anyone that can have a pulse or fog a mirror, something like that. Yeah. And it was like, and it wasn't. You you know, and nobody could, you know, nobody, everybody wanted to get diving right down into tactics and not understanding that they needed, to, that, that we really needed to know that it was very important to know how these companies thought they were making money and how they chose to make money in the future, because that is what this is about. I mean, let's face it, it's, it sounds crass at times to say that, but but the companies companies don't survive if they don't make money. <laughs> right. You well, all the CFOs listening, uh, you just uh, warm the cockles of their hearts. And I recently found out there are some CFOs listening to this, uh, well, probably because they're wondering what all that marketing money is going to. Sure. There, There's another section on that page that says, marketing begins with your business strategies positioning because marketing is a waste of time without it. If the two are not aligned, marketing may well be writing a check the business can't cash, or making a promise the organization can't keep. Oh my goodness! Okay, I, I got to calm down here. You got me <laughs> so whipped into a uh, to a frenzy. But let's talk for a moment about. So that's the strategy, and I think that a, so, such a big differentiator for marketers would be to read like this book and Chuck Bamford's book. And right off the bat, they would be asking the right questions and they would be perceived very differently. And as you talk about in your book, they would start to get a, a place at the table because that you'd be, you'd be weighing in on the whole uh, business strategy, which is why just a minute ago you said you start to become the CEO's best friend because you would understand some of the bigger challenges uh, that they have because you have to take a company first approach. One quick question about business objectives. Okay. So like I just mentioned, I've talked to a lot of marketers over the years who don't know what their company's business objectives are, or they, they right. can't articulate it, and it might not be their fault, it may be their fault, whatever. <laughs> Explain why it's so important to know what business objectives are for implementing marketing plans. In other words, you shouldn't be implementing a marketing plan if you don't know what the business objectives are. That, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> do not pass go, do not collect $200. No. No, and that's exactly right. And once again, a number of people told me what their business objectives are. Uh, I don't think we even got down. I don't ever remember getting down to people talking about that, other than the the, the case I mentioned at the in the outset of the book, where somebody said, um, "Hey, how do these marketing uh, plans fit with the business objectives?" And everybody's 
eyes glazed over. Which um, is a great question. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. How and and it and and we we helped the, the client in that particular case retrofit. You know, paint the uh, throw the dart on the wall and then paint the target around it. <laughs> right, but. But it really should work two ways. Like, number one, I should be – we're saying, well, we're going to go to this trade show, for instance. And it should say, well, that – here's how that helps you achieve your marketing objective to go into this new uh, new uh, industry, ver- vertical industry. I'm going to go to this trade show. So that's, that's the, the – and it should work the other way around, that there should be groups of people – organized around that business objective and they should be saying, well, the number one thing is let's go to the trade show. So let me ask you about the thorny problem of growth yes. that you talk about on page 23 because I, I hear you know there's lots of books on growth and, and growth is very important to that CEO. You say growth is a special concern to you for a business strategy. It's in almost everyone's list of objectives, of course, but it can be a problem. Explain how it can be a problem. Well, you know, it's like, you know, it's back to that whole question of uh, making, you know, the uh, choosing what not to do. And, you know, because there's, uh, you know, like, uh, temptation, you know, like it's like walking down the strip in, in Las Vegas, you know, there's temptation everywhere. And, you know, if this, you know, when you stray off the straight and narrow path uh, to, to in order to get growth, in order to get the, um, the, the increased sales that you think you're going to get, you, you're pulled away from your core you know, your core values and your core strategies, and it tends to really disrupt your entire organization. And people get confused. Yeah. Is it also not that much of a differentiator? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> well, it's, it's a kind of like, yeah, it's like, whoa, you know, uh, the, the differentiation matters unless it doesn't, you know, it's like. Right. And it matters to the customer, not to the business. Right. Oh, right. Boy. Yeah. All right, gosh, I need to. I need to either switch to decaf here or stop reading, <laughs> reading books like yours. Well, we started to touch on this, but I want to ask this because this is controversial. Like yeah. so much of your book, that's uh, where you say many companies develop marketing strategies and objectives, as well as business strategies and objectives. Why does Jim Everhart advise against that, and what should you do? Well, you know, once again, it keeps coming back to the, my whole uh, Instagram strategy, Facebook strategy. Uh, if marketing develops its strategies and objectives, then that then it seems like we're we're back to marketing gets a free pass and we can make these things up and do whatever we want because we do cool, fun stuff. And um, it's I, I, I'm I know I'm being a pain in the neck about this. I recognize that and I'm being a word nerd or whatever, but you know, you gotta, you gotta have one strategy and boy, if marketing can embrace that and become the advocate for that, um, we can make a lot of progress. Yeah. But Jim Everhart, you've only been doing this for over 40 years. You haven't seen many examples of what works. What what, what do you know? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I gosh, (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you talk uh, – here's another little trick for the marketers. You talk in uh, 
page 31, when you are presenting results to top management, it's always a good idea to be prepared to explain how your initiative supports the business objectives and vice versa. So when you're putting that presentation together, if you don't know what the business objectives are, go find out what they are or help your company formalize them so that you can then keep pointing back to that so that they won't start thinking of you as a arts and crafts party planner who works in the make it pretty department. Let's go to uh, chapter three. Again, <laughs> I see this all the time. But you, you write, uh, this is about the market. Remember the customers, which so yeah. many companies seem to forget about. You write, you would think that most companies know what industry they're selling into. <laughs> what, Jim? What have you seen? Uh, well, it, it's funny. Uh, you you would be amazed um, when, especially this is this is a specific problem with B two B. Yes. When you go through distribution and you're selling a product, the distributors t- all too of you know in your channel tends to take fierce ownership of the of the customer, especially in light of the, you know, the e-business revolution, you know, that, hey, uh, what do they need me for if, uh, if I'm just a pass-through, if I'm just a warehouse uh, marking up the, the price of the products? And so uh, they become very jealous of the customers. And there are times when um, I have specifically said, well, okay, so where is this used? <laughs> Well, we, you know, it, then, then you start getting... I don't know. The distributor bought it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Who's our customer? The distributor. <laughs> not really. Not really, they're not. You know, it's like, you know, they don't wear stuff out. You know what I mean? It's like they don't, they don't ever put it on anything, you know, so they don't ever use it, apply it. So, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a real problem in B2B because, you know, when you go through distribution... Your insight into customers it can be very limited. Yes, I can remember there was another book on the show, and I can't remember which one because there's been hundreds of books and an equal number of glasses of Cabernet Sauvignon. So, but there was a book about uh, <clears throat> how a, a, a manufacturer had no idea who their customers were. They were just selling to the distributor. So they went ahead and started to f- find out. And it was uh, revelatory. They started to get insights into how they could make their products better and how they could actually help the distributors sell more of them. But before that, they were like, I don't know. They're just buying them. I don't know who's using this stuff. <laughs> Wrong oh, yeah. answer. Wrong yeah. answer. Yeah. So I had one customer one time or one client one time that, that they said, you know, we would we, you know, it was an and admittedly it was a new technology company, but they didn't know what what features of the product a customer would value Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we said why'd you do this and it was like the answer was because we could (laughs) typical engineer answer (laughs) yes and that's where it came from it's like because we could and it's like and they said well we just say it's a feature rich um product okay Oh, that's 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 like uh, yeah, and uh, guess where that went? Yeah, so that section of the book, just so the listener knows, you you talk about 
the more you can understand about who your customer is and who your customer's customer are, it gives you an almost unfair advantage because they want very different things, very different things. And you make it very clear in there. I want to jump to uh, the buying team. Of course, you know everybody knows that there's more and more people involved in making buying decisions. Yes. And buying is just more complicated. I mean, I've had books on sales on the show where they say, look, just – don't focus so much on selling. Try to make buying from you easier <laughs> because people forget just how complicated and, and uh, worried the buyers are. And I want to ask you to talk about this from page uh, 55, beginning of chapter four, where you say the growth in size and complexity of the buying team is one reason why so many companies have turned to account-based marketing uh, approaches, ABM. Despite the name, marketing has been slow to catch up. Explain for new listeners what ABM is and what you mean when you say that uh, marketing has been slow to catch up. Like, is there what, what's what's keeping them from doing that? I tend to think this is another one of these situations where you know, once again, the the gap between marketing and sales isn't just a gap; it's a chasm. Um, and you know, I think account-based marketing has become. Um, you know, it is kind of like in the sales arena. That's you know, forget what the the name says. Yes, you know, where the name comes from. It seems it's it's in the sales arena, and marketing understands like, okay, no, I I just want to run a Super Bowl ad. And, you know, and it's like, no, no, we want to target this company and we want to target these people in this company. And, you know, we're starting to get to that point. We have media tools to be able to do that and things like that. But we're still slow to the game and still slow to thinking about how do we how do we work with sales to develop the materials they need and that we can we can, you know, supply them and, and, you know, because while, and, and, you know, we say, okay, a particular product, you know, the buying team could have like, you know, a cast of, you know, more, more cast than uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but it, but, and, and it might be like that and it might be, they might get along just as well as the characters on Game of Thrones. <laughs> Very good. Yes. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, they, um, uh, they all have specific interests, you know, like the CFO, they don't need to know the technology behind it. They don't know, need to know that it works with this IT infrastructure or that it, you know, it can go into a clean room or something like that. The, the, the CFO just wants to know certain things about the cost structure and how you, how, how you expect to be paid and, you know, what the ongoing costs are going to be. Um, and whereas the, you know, the IT guy, once again, doesn't need to know about all the other tech, you know, the, the, how it fits into the, uh, you know, in, you know, how it'll help you achieve certain your, you know, your technical advantages, but he does need to know about what kind of IT support it needs, to, needs to fit into. So, you know, it's kind of that whole idea that we need to get that, you know, we're just not, we're just not making use of this technology very well, uh, you know, so that once again, you can develop these, some of these materials, and they can be kind of, uh, you know, you know that a CFO in one company is going to ha- want the same things as a CFO in another company, 
so you can start to be a little bit more generic, if you will, but you still have to pay attention to the fact that that particular buying team you know, has a has a cast of characters, all of whom need different need, need different things. Yes, they do need different things. They do need information, and you should provide it. But Jim Everhart cautions folks because I've heard this before too. Some have advanced the idea that marketers should create separate marketing programs for each of the buyers on the team. Right. right. And in theory, they're right, but that can get out of hand really quickly. I want to jump, kind of related to that, though, to this concept. Uh, the first key to strategic execution is clarifying decision rights. That's a term I didn't know. Explain what decision rights are. Yeah, I got that. I mean, I have to admit, I, uh, you know, I, that was part of my research that I learned about. I mean, I, I knew about the concept, but I didn't know... I, I didn't know it had been so formally fleshed out as it was in this particular case. Oh, this it, was from Rogers and Blanco in Harvard yes. Business Review? Okay, yeah. Thanks yeah. for the, all these helpful footnotes. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. Uh, the, the whole idea is that, you know, once again, all the members of the buying team aren't created equal. And that there's some people who are just in to, to check the box and like the, the HR person is in for just to, to, to be a good, you know, to make sure that there's no special training or no special skills needed to operate a piece of equipment or something like that. What's most valuable is that the decision rights, who is the ultimate decision maker in this and, and who else is just a recommender and then who else is, is just an influencer. Mm-hmm. So, understanding those differences, and you know, and understanding that really you have to cater to the decision maker. Identify the case because, as you as you alluded, um, this gets way out of control when you start to act like you can communicate with all these people um, and give everybody uh, like a customized marketing program. I mean, I mean, maybe somebody, maybe Apple or somebody can afford that. Um, but boy, most of the clients I deal with, there's no way they can afford that. Yeah. Not, not in the real world. <laughs> and it actually could turn into an episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> like people trying to screw each other over and kill one another. The, yeah. the thing that was helpful, uh, is or a helpful reminder for me, is that you write that the people who have the most to gain or lose uh, because the purchase directly affects their work. So if the more that you can think about whose head is on the chopping block or who has the most to lose, who's yeah. committing career, who's who's expending career capital here, that really helps you zero in. That's a great phrase. Yeah. Good way to think about it. So I'm going to go to part three, the, the creative. And I know I've quoted some sections here that have gotten me all fired up, but as a longtime ad agency guy, this is the one that kind of sent me off the edge. It was a rough week for me after I finished <laughs> reading your book. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I'm kidding. You write, development of marketing creative is one of the most important steps in the process of connecting business strategy to marketing tactics. It is, in fact, where the wheels often come off as everyone from the creative team to the executive board falls in love with a concept that is cool or hip or whatever but misses the point of the strategy. That's the problem of falling in love with a story that doesn't go where you need it to go. And that usually happens when the creative starts before the strategy is defined. 
as if you can rationalize the creative into the strategy, or worse yet, retrofit the strategy around the concept. That's the point of developing a strategic vision first. The clear-eyed declarative sentence that not only says what you need to say for the task at hand, but also flows naturally out of the business strategy and positioning. Many would say, that's not possible, that the only way to get good creative is to let your imagination run freely. That's baloney. Great creative begins with great strategy, period. No matter how fun or cool the creative, if it's not on strategy, it's useless. It may even be harmful. So just to continue, I want to start this story and ask you to tell us what happened. You write, uh, several years ago, a new client came to me with a familiar tale. They had tons of data sheets, they said. They had a website. They had some great customer testimonials, and they had multiple divisions all working very diligently to provide outstanding products and services for customers. We have all that information, the client said, but we need a story. I knew what she meant. She was partly right, but in some ways, she wasn't. Jim Everhart, explain. Okay. <laughs> what you, I'll start with where she wasn't right. Where she wasn't right was that there were stories. You know, customers had stories. Every sales guy had stories. It's like your company has a positioning. You just may not know it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and people are out there saying stuff. And, you know, distributors have stories. And everybody's telling the story. So that's the... So you, she had stories. It's just she just had way too many of them. What she needed was one story, one story that that people could get that they understood that resonated. And boy, you know, if it can be really true, that's even better yet. And <laughs> that's the that's the whole thing. So you know, authenticity, reality. It's it's about creating, you know, and and it's it's not so much, you know, me as a great writer writing that story. It's finding that story, right? It's like going out there and discovering that story, and then helping to articulate it. And the strategic vision that you outline in your book is a big part of that. You say it's a it's the linchpin of the the brand vision process. But can you just explain what the strategic vision is? Yeah. So first, it's aligned with the business strategy and objectives. Second, it's connected to the audience hot buttons that we were just talking about. And it's differentiating from the competition. So easy to say, so (laughs) hard to do. Yes. Oh, just those three right there. Aligned, connected, differentiating. It's three things that you because what what I found is you know and 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 it gets back to the other part that you, you were probably reacting to, which is you know that falling in love with creative before you have this thing really articulated. It needs all the strategic vision needs to be all three of those things. Yes, yes. Otherwise, it's called ready, fire, aim, <laughs> yes. which is very common. So. I want to jump to another section of the book that is very controversial. You know, church and state, this is going to light some people's fuses, but where does Jim Everhart stand on the issue of gating content? Got to generate those leads, right? Yes, you do. But I, I every time I've ever seen anybody gate content um, that I didn't think was appropriate, uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I was in a meeting that 
where somebody said they wanted to get the whole website. <laughs> and it's like, you know, wait a minute. You want these people to have this information. You, you're giving it to them for free. You used to have to pay to print it and mail it out. Now they can get it for free and then get it right away. What, why would you want to get in their way? And so that you have to keep that in mind. And yes, we want leads, but um, you, you, it only usually works when you're giving somebody something that they really, number one, they can't get somewhere else. And number two, that they really want. They really need to have uh, a research study, some kind of a, a really whiz-bang ca calculator or something like that. But uh, getting them to register to get your white paper usually doesn't cut it. Absolutely true. And you know, it's funny, I think that I'm even less inclined to want to leave my email address when I want something. And I think a lot of people are the same way. They just, it's just less and less effective. And even in your book, you mentioned David Merriman Scott, who's one of the, uh, he's a very vocal proponent of ungating content. And he's got a lot of the same uh, approach that you do where you show the numbers behind, you know, you, you just get this, uh, a lot more information out there to folks. Uh, it's just not you're just not going to capture their email address so that you can then bother them. <laughs> Which, again, I had I had I wrote ha off to the side of this. <laughs> you wrote some companies rely on marketing and automation for this stage. Unfortunately, many of them view the technology as a form of magic, a way to keep hounding people <laughs> until they are ready to convert. That's not the best use of the technology, and may antagonize more people than it converts. I mean, the truth is there, folks, if, if, if you want it. I want to jump just a couple of the quick questions about optimization. And yes. uh, let's see, I think it's on page 139. So I can quote all these pages because I read this in the last week. I, I realized you didn't write this book <laughs> in the last seven days when I read it. But it's, um, despite protestations to the contrary, most marketers really don't optimize their marketing programs and tactics. Whoa. Well, what's going on there, Jim Everhart? You realize you're not going to get hired anymore by marketers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I can't get over the number of times when I've gone in and proposed a way to optimize and track and and you know record things, and most of the time, everybody's eyes glaze over. The creative process involves lots of what do they call it? You know, unfortunately, you put your your a lot on the line with when you do a creative product. Sure, um, sure, both, you do both from the agency standpoint and from from the um, marketer who who approves it mm -hmm. and sometimes you just don't want to know and I, I i get that impression and uh, my opinion is my approach has always been i want to know it's better to know than not know i don't want to find out in the ceo's office that something didn't work yeah and there's a great uh, just one of many great tools in the book where you you go up to the whiteboard and you have two columns one of them is what's working, what's not. Yeah. I mean, even if a CEO were to say, I want to see you all do that, it would give them permission to start testing and maybe make a mistake or two. Um, I think one of the best questions a CEO could ask their marketing people, even if they only get to see the plan once a year, is that's great. What are you going to be testing this year? Yeah. 
Yeah, oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? I haven't asked Kaushik, who's I think that's how to say his name. Yeah, the the guy who does the analytics. You know, he talked about failing faster, and that's the whole light. That's the whole benefit of the electronic uh, marketing that we now have, which is we can put stuff out there, we can try it, and we can cut our losses and move on to the next thing in the blink of an eye. Yeah, everything I've read about companies like Amazon, their management says, you know, the, the reason we're successful is because we test. We can't stop testing. And if something doesn't work out, we don't consider it a failure. We consider what we, we consider that we've learned something. Yeah. But it's yeah. A, a very different mindset. I, I can't resist here. You're right. So I say most marketers don't really optimize their programs and tactics. And then you go on to explain first. Now, just so you know, Jim Everhart, off to the side, instead of writing ha, I wrote yowza. You wrote, <laughs> first, it's notoriously difficult. Second, as noted earlier, most companies haven't set up their marketing initiatives in easy-to-evaluate packages like campaigns. Third, creatives all too often don't like having their art evaluated using criteria <laughs> other than aesthetic appeal. Ooh! And fourth, marketing managers have successfully resisted scrutiny for decades and are not giving up that position without a fight. Oh, it's so, it's so true. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the more CEOs or presidents of companies that might read this, they might start to understand uh, perhaps some of the unrealistic things they've been tasking their marketing people with doing. Um, it's not a matter of just, you know, buying ads like when you and I were back in the good old days. Yeah. So last thing I wanted to ask you about was a really minor issue with marketers. It's called ROI. <laughs> like every survey you read, it's like that's the proving the ROI, the return on investment. It's one of the biggest issues for folks. So we can't resist not talking about that. Sure. And you write on page 152, calculating ROI for marketing expenditures has always been an elusive goal. Retail giant John Wanamaker famously remarked that half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half. And Jim, just so you know, I heard that same stupid expression for my entire advertising career. I'm sure you did. Yeah. Well, I mean, you wouldn't have put it in the book if you hadn't heard it. Yeah. You go on to write, there are a number of reasons for this indecision. The reason we keep hearing that is because it was there was a, a, a kernel of truth in it. Sure. Um, there are a number of reasons for this indecision. Depending upon whom you're talking to, calculating ROI is either difficult, if not impossible, or it's a piece of cake. <laughs> so, so you're you know you're a uniter, not a divider, Jim Everhart. Take us through both sides. Talk talk to us about you know the, the difficulties of establishing ROI versus what maybe the uh, I'm, I'm going to pick on somebody like maybe the CFO might be saying. What's so hard about this? Yeah, well, sure. I, I guess what I'd say is, um, you know, I've been in, you know, like countless meetings where we talk about how to how to calculate ROI. And so right away, you've got technology barriers, you know, the, the CRM software doesn't doesn't calculate things. I mean, there there were tons of people, and not to run Salesforce down, there were tons of clients, almost, in fact, almost every one of the clients that I dealt with had Salesforce or something like it. Mm -hmm. But almost none of them had it set up to fully utilize uh, the marketing tracking capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mostly, you know, some of them just had it set up as a content man or contact management um, 
software, and that was it, and and not much more than that. And so, at the very least, you know, the data exists somewhere. It's just you can't have it. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so then, and you know, and that gets gets you all tied up in the turf wars between sales and marketing. And of course, that you know, and you need, very real, very real. Yeah, and you need some idea of, and you need to have these discussions with sales about what is a lead, what's a good sales lead, what's not a good lead, things like that. So that there's, um, you know, and, and there's so many other factors. So that's yeah. That You've got like happen. attribution. That's another one that we could spend oh. uh, eight hours talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then with B two B especially, there's the sales cycles can be eighteen months or longer. Yeah. And so, so that's a that's those are all the barriers to creating or to calculating ROI. On the other hand. What makes it easy is, and that's why I said there's. I I've been. I was in meetings where I said this. I said, you can't tell me that the CFO didn't say you went to this show, you you spent, pick it, three hundred thousand dollars or whatever. You got a hundred leads. That's uh, three thousand dollars a lead. And you can't tell somebody me that somebody. A CFO didn't say that at some point. That's just arithmetic. Yeah. You know, that's not calculus, you know, not trig. It's arithmetic. Well, it's also and, a good start. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> and, and so my whole position is you got to start somewhere. And that, that while it's true, you know, trying to get uh, a, a, a CEO to approve a, you know, multi-million dollar, you know, expenditure to calculate ROI on marketing, while that's extremely difficult, uh, you know, if we start somewhere and start having that conversation, number one, shows we're serious about it. And number two, you know, we start having, getting, wetting people's appetite and start to say, well, you know, Last time we did this, we found out this. So we're not going to do that this time. We're going to do this instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you could be doing, marketer, you could be doing a lot of things that you know don't make any sense and you don't want to do. And this might be your way to start removing things because so many marketers live in this additive life where <laughs> they keep throwing more stuff on their plate and they never get to take anything off. Yeah. And, and you know what? And going to more trade shows oh. and more whatever. You know? Yeah, just keep doing more of everything. But just so the listener knows, we won't go into it, but there's a section here, no sales data, no problem. And you walk them through exactly a good way to get started. And it seems that marketers should, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but they, if they could steer into ROI, it could become their superpower. Just yeah. get started, and as you as you get more and more into it, you'll just get better and better. And again, I couldn't resist here from page 154. The alternative for marketing is not pretty. Without ROI, marketing will continue to be marginalized with slightly higher perceived value than the company bowling team. <laughs> Perhaps not as much as a lobby renovation. If we can't change that dynamic, we're doomed headed for the scrap heap of history, and we should be. I wish you would have been clearer about where you stand on these things. <laughs> <laughs> G- 
Jim. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I, it, was, it was kind of mealy mouthed of me, wasn't it? You know? Yeah, you know, after more than four decades in the business, I, I, you know, I don't feel like you need to hold back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> let, let me just ask one other one other thing about ROI. I'm saying this because I want to encourage the marketers out there. You write about the importance of reporting ROI to management, and yet there are many marketers perhaps many listening to this who are, are not doing it or they, they have maybe they haven't been asked to do it or they will claim they don't have the data. I would argue that neither of those are valid excuses. Uh, you need to take ownership of that. But on that page, you've got a reminder of the importance of reporting ROI to management and how that can enormously help marketers. Can you walk us through some of those, why this can add to the marketer's superpower, even if they're not asked for it? Well, sure. I mean, I, like for one thing, as you said, boy, if I can, if I can, um, if I can prove that I'm trying things and that I'm learning from them. So the very least, I'm taking on a learning attitude. I'm taking, I'm, I'm experimenting. I'm trying new things constantly. And boy, I'm moving on from the things that don't work. And, and I'm trying to do more of the things that do. So that's the, that's the first and most obvious thing. But the second thing is it shows, shows that I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm going to be my own worst critic. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to learn. I'm going to try to get more things. I'm going to try and get good information out of this data. I'm going to make use of this data that that we now have that we never had before. And then, uh, uh, more than that, I'm going to try to become. Uh, and this is the marketing superpower. Imagine what kind of a competitive that advantage that can offer a company if they start to know what works and what doesn't, what resonates with their audience and what doesn't, what themes resonate, what what communications techniques work. If I, you know, the more I know, the stronger I'm going to get and the better marketer and the stronger and more competitive, um, better competitor I'm going to be in the marketplace. Yes, ROI to marketers is like spinach to Popeye. <laughs> There you go. Is, it, is that still around, Popeye? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. For you kids, it was a cartoon about a sailor who got strong <laughs> by eating spinach. So, Jim, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Um, I, I one strategy. Uh, that's that's the whole that that's the most important thing. Focus on one strategy, not Facebook, Twitter strategies, uh, email strategies, web strategies. One strategy, the business strategy. Uh, you know, understand it, help articulate it, help everybody understand it, embrace it, and be the best advocate you can be for that. Well said, well said. And you know, if people get through the first two chapters and they can't get it resolved, they need, it's almost like they need to pause at that point. It's like measure twice, cut once. Yes. Everything in the rest of the book flows nicely if you've got some kind of strategy. Again, doesn't have to be perfect. What is one thing a listener could do today? They don't even have the book yet. To, to put in action an idea from the book that we've, we've talked about. Uh, the one thing I'm really focusing on is, and it's related to the um, one thing they could take away, which is to think about, start to think about strategic messaging, uh, which is that I am going to create a document 
that is going to clearly articulate how whatever this initiative is, whether it's a branding initiative, uh, a market, you know, or an industry profile or a uh, product uh, launch, I'm going to articulate very clearly how that supports the business strategy. Uh, so that's the aligned part of it. I'm going to talk about what the, uh, you know, what the potential, uh, the target customer, target audience, what they care about. And that's the, um, that's the connected part, connected to audience hot buttons. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and, and how this fits in the competitive environment, whether how this offering fits into the competitive environment. And, and that's the, um, Differentiated, uh, yeah. Differentiating part of it. And that one document should then be able to give, you should be able to create, uh, share with all your content creators so that they know they, they have their marching orders and they don't necessarily have the creative phrase, but they've got the phrase that's the one takeaway that they're supposed to, uh, people are supposed to understand and, and embrace. Great advice. Those three things right there. Even if you're not ready to share it with your management, <laughs> start yeah. start writing it down. Think yeah. about that. So looking back, Jim, what books have most inspired your work and career? Uh, I've, I've already talked about a lot of them in, earlier in the podcast that we talked about, but you know, um, not surprisingly, Michael Porter, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and the giants of, uh, of business strategy from the eighties and nineties and, you know, two thousands, uh, like Clayton Christensen, Jeffrey Moore, some of those people. And, and then my personal favorite was Tracy and Wiersma, uh, the disciplines of market leaders. Those are those are uh, really ones that help me get started, as well as the one you even mentioned, uh, Trout and Reese, and some of those guys. Oh yeah, yeah. positioning, yeah. marketing warfare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And those uh, authors, they're often mentioned uh, on the show. Those are definitely some heavy hitters. I did not know about Tracy and Wiersma. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or? Looking forward to reading, perhaps one about long distance running. <laughs> well, I'll read anything by Seth Godin. So yes, uh, <laughs> that's good. Oh, one of the things that I've read in the last year or two that that I've really liked um, is Gary Hamilton, Michelle Michelle Zini, uh, Humanocracy. If oh. you're familiar with that, no. One. That's it's a very interesting book, and Herbert Hubert um, Jolie, uh, Heart of Business. Uh, he, uh, Mr. Jolie was the, um, uh, uh, I think, he's CEO of uh, Best Buy, and he helped engineer the turnaround at Best Buy. And they have a very both of them talk about uh, more employee centered kind of uh, management and tactics. And what's interesting about both those two, I'm beginning to think that branding needs to be not immune from that whole employee-centered phenomenon uh, the way it has been. Branding has been the preserve of the top management, you know, that uh, you know, that only the top management and the board of directors get to choose the branding and everything like that. And I might not make myself very popular, but 
if we're expecting the employees to cash that check and to make that happen. And activate and, that brand. And yes, make that come alive. They got to participate. Interesting. And they got to be part of it. And we may be missing an opportunity. And so what's funny is my current endeavor is to, I'm looking for a few good companies that maybe want to try that. Maybe want to experiment with that a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. You know, the branding has left the marketing department a long time ago. You know, there was a book on the show years back called Unbranding by Scott and Allison Stratton. And uh, great book, really entertaining. And they talk about how the most important branding department in your company is human resources, yeah. not marketing, which is yeah. uh, tied in with what I'm seeing here. This is called The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism by Hubert yeah. Jolie. And then yeah. the other one is Humanocracy, yes. Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside That. Wow, what an interesting pair of books. I didn't know about either, which is why I love asking that question. It's good. Yeah. And it's a, for me, it's a question of, you know, I'll really make myself unpopular. I don't think you can be any more unpopular. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think that your book, this book here, it's going to make some people angry or nervous, or uh, it's going to make them feel like they weren't taking crazy pills. And I'm in the latter camp. Well, good, good. What I was going to say is it, it feels like you say, well, I'm going to have, I'm going to bring in a CEO from the outside, and I'm going to have a board of directors who have a bunch of high-profile uh, jet setters who do some things, whatever, and they're going to tell this 5,000-person organization what they're about. Now, who at least should have, who has the real skin in the game? Who has? Um, you know, and, and the the real skin in the game really needs to count for more. Put it that way. Yeah, and at the employee level, particularly for for a lot of companies. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's a it's a different wrinkle than what I'm uh, used to seeing. So, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned. Uh, we'll include a link to your LinkedIn profile and your. Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Jim and congratulate him on the book and thank him for being such a good-natured guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or, uh, or what have you. Guests on the show have told me that they really do enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Um, and if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Brand Vision, The Clear Line of Sight, Aligning Business Strategy and Marketing Tactics. The author is Jim Everhart. Jim, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I, uh, I, it was a lot of fun. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, 
please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some marketing book podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.